welcome all you weirdos, ex-Krakoans, and everyone who enjoys running and hiding from Sentinels. Even now, in these dark days, we remain the mutant member of your Weird Science Podcast family. I'm your host, Jason, broadcasting today from an undisclosed location deep in the Morlock Tunnels. And Ruben? I don't know where Ruben is. You know, I kept telling the guy to practice his Red Triangle protocols, but he just wouldn't listen. So, it's just me who will be talking to you about this week's books, which are Astonishing Iceman number 1, X-Men number 25, and then stick around for a very brief mention of Magneto number 1. I do have the software set up to use the correct microphone today, so things should be sounding a bit better than last week. My voice is worse, though, so maybe it all cancels out and ends up sounding the same. Either way, let's get started with Astonishing Iceman number 1 of 5, Out Cold Part 1. Written by Steve Orlando, art by Vincenzo Caruto, colors by Hava Tartaglia, letters by Travis Lanham, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. Now, let's actually stop and talk about the design for a moment, since it's changed, starting with the trade dress there on the cover. The logo, the corner box, it all looks kind of scratched and worn, distressed, I think is the word, as do the data pages and the credit page. And the credits and the upcoming issue pages just look kind of jumbled and askew like they were just thrown together in a hurry. It really sends the message that things in this era are just not orderly anymore. The mutants are not in control of anything. The whole illusion of a perfectly planned government, perfectly planned life, perfectly planned everything, that's all out the door. Now it's catch as catch cat. The only character listed here in the cast of characters is Iceman, and he gets a question mark because, um, Hey, ain't he dead? Last week, Ruben and I both had the same thought as to how Iceman was going to turn out to be alive, and we were both wrong. But I still think our idea was actually a lot less dumb than the one Steve Orlando goes with, but we'll get to that. As this book opens, we're some handful of weeks after the events of the Hellfire Gala. We get a montage of social media posts. Always a bad sign, I think, when a series starts off with social media stuff. Maybe I'm just old. These posts show blurry photos of someone who looks like Iceman, or the after effects of someone rescuing innocents, or stopping baddies in a style very reminiscent of Iceman. Then we get the issue's main action scene. Very classic thing to do. Start off by showing your hero being heroic, using his superpowers. In this case, Orcus is firing indiscriminately into a San Francisco crowd, which seems an odd choice if they want the general public to see them as the good guy. The creatures doing the firing look like leftover limbo demons from that dark web event. Later on, there's a data page that talks about experimental nano-sentinels that can turn inorganic matter into a immune hunting machine. It still looks like limbo silliness to me. Now, we learn for sure right away that these orca spots are the bad guys because one of them shoots right through a rainbow pride flag. You didn't expect the mutant slash gay metaphor to be subtle in a Steve Orlando book now, did you? So the true goal of this orca's action isn't really to capture the tertiary target they're chasing. He's just some dude who used the experience drug to be able to do sex better. No, the real goal is to lure Iceman out into the open to capture him. Iceman does get lured out and... Then he does a fine job foiling Orcus's plan by smashing up all the Orcus bots. Then we get a whole page of Iceman and the tertiary target guy making out because, again, Steve Orlando book. Now, doesn't Bobby have a boyfriend? Do you think he makes a habit of smooching with everyone he rescues, or is this a special case? We move on to a brief scene of Orcus HQ in The Bloom, their orbital base. The main bad guy here is one Agent Pequod. He's a new character, but if his name sounds familiar... It's the same as that whaling ship from Moby Dick. And Agent Pequod's white whale is, naturally, Iceman. 
he starts dropping ominous hints to his goons that if they don't come up with a way to catch Bobby Drake ASAP, it might be time to call in the cleaner. Whoever the hell that might be. But I have a hunch we get to see this cleaner before the end of issue number five. With the action and villain boxes checked, next we get a scene that fills us in a little bit on Bobby's new status quo. He's built a stronghold in Antarctica that is just barely legally distinct from Big Blue's Fortress of Solitude. He shares this space with a nonverbal snowman named Clyde, basically a mindless one but made of snow and ice, and his boyfriend, Romeo. The same Romeo who was Bobby's date to the gala. And now we get the explanation of sorts for Bobby's return. Romeo is an inhuman, which we knew. He's a character who's been around since 2016, but with only a small handful of appearances. He has been shown as having empath-type powers, sensing emotions, altering emotions, that kind of thing. In this issue, he's given a bit of a power buff. Bobby's narration tells us that, quote, the more Romeo feels for someone, the more his power can affect them. And Romeo must have had a hell of a lot of feels for our pal Bobby, because after Bobby's death at the gala, the power of those feels is sufficient to bring Bobby back. But Bobby isn't quite all the way back. Romeo needs to keep empathetically holding him together, which gets more difficult the longer Bobby stays away from his Fortress of Isitude. Luckily, Romeo has a video game-esque X icon, which lets him keep an eye on his boyfriend's remaining hit points. Now, exactly what this Bobby is is up for discussion. Is this the real Bobby, the same Bobby we saw die? At least as much as any resurrected character in this era is the same as the one who went before. Let's not open up that can of worms too much. Originally, I thought that this was just kind of a hand-wavy bit of Steve Orlando nonsense, just an excuse to bring the real Bobby back. But the more I think about it, the more I'm persuaded to agree with Gabe Hernandez, noted Predator fan and crack reviewer in text for the Weird Science Marvel website. It does seem noteworthy that in this issue, we only see Bobby in his iced-up form, never as regular flesh and blood. Gabe thinks, and I may be increasingly in agreement, that this isn't really Bobby. This is just a doll, an action figure, and an ice golem running off of Romeo's powers, and Bobby's actually dead. Is that going to be revealed as the truth with a capital T by the end of this miniseries? Probably not. Not in a book named The Astonishing Iceman. I think we're supposed to think it's really Iceman, but it's my headcanon, and I'm sticking to it. We do get one more quick scene. Remember that Pequod guy who works for Orcus? He and his group have come up with a new plan to go after Iceman. It wouldn't be a Steve Orlando book without a deep-cut character callback, and this issue is The Elements of Doom. These are a group of Avengers baddies who have, you probably guessed it by now, element-based powers. Think DC's Metal Men, but more of them and evil. Metals and non-metals. Think back to your chemistry classes, kids. Uh, these fellas were created by Bill Mantlo and John Byrne back in the disco era of 1979, and they haven't been seen in a comic book since 2007, possibly for a good reason. But now they've been hired by Orcus and sent to menace Madeline Drake, Iceman's mom. So that's the book. And overall, this book isn't really for me. It has the general structure of a perfectly adequate solo superhero book. He's on the run from authorities, he wants to protect innocents, and he has a secret weakness. Vincenzo Caruto's art is actually quite good. I'd call it Marvel House style, but slightly elevated. I'm not really feeling a spark from this story. The specific changes made within this classic framework all feel kind of a little bit off. Maybe I'd be more interested in Bobby's adventures if they seemed more connected to what the rest of these surviving mutants are up to. But Bobby doesn't seem interested in anybody else at all. He's just doing his own thing. Which, again, would make sense if he's just an ice golem, but 
Again, probably not. I expect that going forward, Ruben and I, if Ruben does come back, we'll give this book the same kind of treatment we gave to the Rogue and Gambit series. We'll read the issues, we'll give you guys quick updates on any important plot points that seem relevant to the larger story of the mutant diaspora, but this book doesn't seem all that essential, and so we likely won't be devoting a whole lot of time to it. Now, please do write in or tweet at WS Marvel Comics if you think I'm off base here, and you think this is the most important book in the entire lineup. Oh, and I give this issue, call it a 6 out of 10. It's not horrible, it's mostly fine, some people are going to love it, just not me. Moving on to what I think is a much more important book, and let's hope it's better too. This is X-Men number 25. From the Shadows, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Stefano Caselli, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Clayton Cowles, design by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. As this is a milestone 25th issue, it is double-sized and a couple bucks more expensive. But honestly, this isn't a bad time to have an oversized issue because, I don't know if you've noticed, there's been rather a lot going on in the world of the X-Men these days. So I'm pretty happy to take a few more pages and pay out another buck or so if they tell me more about this new status quo. For the most part, yeah, Jerry Duggan does that. He does tell this story out of order, which works perfectly well for the tale he wants to tell, but for my purposes discussing it, and because, you know, let's be honest, it's kind of become my gimmick, I'm going to put things back into chronological order. And that means beginning at the start of the issue, at a time right around the Dawn of X, Marauders number 1. We know this because Kitty still has the bandage on her nose from trying and failing to walk through that first gate. This scene is a park bench chat between Kate and her rabbi, and mostly serves to remind us that A, Kate has heretofore not been able to make use of those gates, which I think we all remember, and two, she's been pretty sore about point A, to the point where she almost doubted whether she was a real mutant. Now we jump to page 30 of my digital edition, which retells the final moment of the 2023 Hellfire Gala, and goes on from there. As we all recall, Kate Pride fell through the otherwise non-functioning Krakone Gate system, and landed on her cute little keister right outside the Jerusalem habitat, surrounded by nameless, semi-faceless Orcus goons. Things do not go well for the goons. Kitty has had a rough day. Do you remember in Marauders, again that first Marauders series, just post-Hoxpox, when there was a bit of discourse going on about the por portrayal of Kitty as more violent than often seen in the past? Well, all that seems a bit quaint now, as this Kitty violently murders to death at least ten of these mooks, leaving not a one alive to run off and report on her. She did ask them to surrender first, so there is that. But when they refuse, bad things happen to them, mostly involving Kitty's phasing abilities, such as phasing grenades into the chest of two dudes so they blow up from the inside, but also just some straight-up ninja-style fighting. They recognize her powers, so they've had some training or at least briefing on what Kitty Pryde is capable of, but it does them precious little good. Three more notable moments in this fight. First, the narration boxes. And this is a current-day Jerry Duggan book, so of course there are extensive third-party omniscient narration boxes. And these call out her training under Wolverine, and also under the ninja named Ogun. More on him later, including in this week's recommended reading segment, if I remember. Second, just what I think must be an art error, because Kitty throws a Lex Luthor-looking goon into a hooded goon, and the Luther goon phases into and merges into the hooded one. We all know that's not how Kitty's powers work. She needs to make physical contact with anything or anyone she wants to make insubstantial. I think it probably just looked cool on panel, they didn't go back to fix it. I don't think this is a real change in how her powers work. 
And finally, the last surviving Orcus goon, who has seen his compatriots die and knows for sure that the jig is both up and truly gone, he begs Kitty for mercy, pointing out that he had been saved by the X-Men up on the bloom. This is a reference to the events of issue number 18 of this volume, when the X-Men fixed a hull breach on Orca space station. The rescued Orcus goons in that issue were all wearing full red beekeeper suits, so there's no way to pick out this particular fella. But I presume he's there. Kitty responds to this anecdote by saying, yeah, that, that is what the X-Men do. They save everybody. She gets a particularly crazed look at her face now as she points out, a shame those X-Men are dead now, and she brutally snaps the guy's neck. Jump back to page six, which the narration box tells us is X weeks ago, but more specifically must, takes, must take place right after the gala debacle and the Jerusalem scene, because this Kate, while a bit disheveled, is still wearing her party getup. We see her immediately after she exits the Krakoan gate, which, hey, she can use now. As far as we know, she's the only person in existence who can use these gates. She's at the Xavier Mansion, which is covered with graffiti including No Mutants, Seek and Destroy, Kill the X, and Wacker was here. Wacker? There was until very recently an editor at Marvel named Stephen Wacker, so this is probably a nod to that guy. Hope you like it, Stephen. Now, Kitty ignores the graffiti, phases through various walls and floors, and retrieves a pair of swords hidden in the floorboards. They come with a note that reads, You will forever be the weapon that made you, Shadowcat. Signed, Ogin. Okay, so Ogin is former kidnapper slash teacher of Kitty's, and he will again be coming up again later. The narration reminds us of several old nicknames of Kate's, ones that we are told she could not ever use again. From here, we leave Miss Pride, a.k.a. Kitty, a.k.a. Sprite, a.k.a. Ariel, a.k.a. the Red Queen, and peek in at what Dr. Stasis is up to. And what he's up to is propaganda. Speaking on behalf of Orcus, he blames the human deaths at the gala on mutants, he blames the tainted meds on mutants, and he blames the Captain Krakoa murders on, you guessed it, those darn mutants. Stasis holds a newspaper that gives us a rare, solid date for events in the Marvel Universe. It's the Daily Bugle, dated July 27th, 2023, and the headline is Mutant Massacre. Hellfire Gala Turns Deadly, Krakoa Blame, which would put the official date of the gala as July 26th, 2023, which is indeed the date in our world that the Hellfire Gala issue was published. Now, Mutant Massacre, that is a loaded phrase. In X-Lore, it has always referred to the 1986 crossover that saw the original Marauders kill hundreds of Morlock mutants. Now, Orcus is using the term to refer to a massacre purportedly committed by mutants. Real insult to injury, salt in the rule, salt in the wound situation here. A uh, quick question. Does no one in the press notice that this Orcus spokesman, Dr. Stasis, looks a whole lot like and in fact, is essentially identical to, despite the little thing in his forehead, notorious supervillain Mr. Sinister. You'd think someone would remark on that. Uh, now, reporter Ben Urich is there taking notes, but maybe he doesn't look up from his notebook to uh, notice this. Now we get a brief tour of some other things that Orcus has been up to. They've reopened their demutinizing clinics, including one conveniently located right below the Hollywood sign in Los Angeles. They've been covering the non-functional gates with propaganda posters. At the end of the issue, we get a full-page version of one of these, which I guess counts as a data page. It says, Magneto can no longer use this gate. Thanks, Orcus. Which, you know, gotta hand it to him is a pretty good propaganda poster. I hope we get a scene of Kitty going through a papered-over gate and see her burst through those posters like a high school football team taking the field. I look forward to that visual. Orcus has also been deporting some remaining mutants to Mars, 
via spaceship since the gates are no longer an option. Now, I guess these are mutants who, for whatever reason, did not get physically forced or psychically forced through the gates on Galenite, Galenite by Professor X. Specifically, we see the mutant Woofer turfed out on the Red Planet. If you don't remember, we met this guy back in issue 22 when the X-Men rescued him from an Orcus demutantizing clinic in Chicago. And we'll see him again later in this issue. Does this tell us anything about where the mutants who did get forced through the gates on Galenite went? Did they really go to Mars? Uh, things seem still really up in the air about that. I'm hoping for some clarity on that mystery soon, even if that clarity is, uh, yeah, hey dummy, it's supposed to be a mystery. Right now, it just seems kind of like a muddle, which is not the same thing. Also, I wonder why Woofer gets deported to Mars and not forcibly depowered via Orcus's gene therapy. How do they choose who gets what? Our last stop on our Orcus walking tour is their detention facility on Randall's Island in New York City, the one we saw under construction in X-Men number 23. It has since been named the Henry Gyrick Center for Behavioral Studies, after a longtime Marvel semi-villain who was pitched out of an airlock by Abigail Brand back in Sword number 11. We see a pair of random mutants walking around orange prisoner-looking jumpsuits, and we're then introduced to Prisoner 10. That's T-E-N 10, not Prisoner X, but probably a sly little joke here on the part of Dr. Stasis. Because Prisoner 10 is no other than Cyclops himself. We last saw uh, Slim here in an ambulance following his little accident falling from the flaming treehouse. But in the wake of the so-called mutant massacre, no doubt Orcas had no trouble getting him transferred to their authority. His treatment here is a little over the top. He does have a broken back, and Dr. Stasis makes the requisite Professor X when he couldn't walk kind of joke. He's strapped to a kinky-looking X-shaped restraint device, and his dang eyes have been sewn shut. Gross. Also, there's a mechanism by which Scott can, at any moment of Orcus's choosing, be yanked at great speed through a hole the size of a baseball, which would be messy. Stasis offers Scott a deal. All Cyclops has got to do is publicly defame himself, his friends, and his people, by endorsing Orcus's version of what really happened at the gala, and Stasis says, and who can you trust if not Dr. Stasis, he says he will, quote, get you and all your people off Earth, which seems kind of vague. Scott, unsurprisingly, declines the offer. I wonder what Scott even knows about the events of the gala after he ran off of the treehouse. I'm sure he felt Professor X's mental command when it happened, even though he was unable to respond to it, but did he get any of those following details via psychic transfer? Who knows? The timeline of these next few scenes is a little uncertain, so I'm just going to run through page by page. We see a ragtag group of mutants who have holed up in the Morlock Tunnels, another reference to the original Mutant Massacre. The characters we see are Sink, Talon, a.k.a. Wolverine, a.k.a. Old Lady Laura, Rasputin IV, and Ms. Marvel. Sink seems to have taken the leadership position. He and Talon were announced as the leaders of the X-Men team right before they all got shit-mixed by Nimrod, of course. And so far, he's giving out assignments when Kitty phases through a wall behind them. She's in full Shadowcat mode. Sword, hood, dark ninja-inspired outfit. We'll see on the next page that she even cut her hair short. Guess that's the dead giveaway that she's not fooling around. Uh, Kitty, yeah, I'm still going to keep calling her Kitty. Try to stop me. Uh, she has returned from one mission and is only planning on resting here briefly before heading back out. You can tell she's really pushing herself here to just Keep working, keep fighting. Sink borrows her power to follow Kitty through a wall into her own quarters, and they have a little chat while Sink stitches up a wound on Kitty's shoulder. Through this chat, we learn more about Kitty's mental state and the state of this world in general. Kitty is a driven, haunted woman. She blames herself, the mutants in general, but mostly herself, for their downfall. Ms. Marvel is, is scared of her. 
Rasputin IV, who has come back from an alternate timeline, reminds Kitty of when she did something kind of similar, probably a reference here to Days of Future Past. Singh says that Kitty is acting recklessly and he's worried she'll end up getting herself killed. No one knows where Lockheed is. Kitty is the only one for sure who can use the gates. Rasputin can't, even though she's a chimera with multiple X-Genes, including Kitty's. And Sink can't, even when borrowing Kate's power from her directly. Which makes Kitty's ability to use these gates all the more mysterious. I really hope we get a satisfactory explanation for that eventually. Kitty says to herself, quietly, at least in a reduced font size, hey, this is a comic book, Maybe she has a plan. Sink replies, who? Rasputin? But Kate doesn't answer. In the context of the rest of the book, I think we're supposed to infer here that Kate is thinking of Emma. Sink tells Kitty, in a bit where the subtext gets a little close to the surface, that the bit on her shoulder that he just stitched up is going to leave a scar. In the art, it looks to me like the scar is going to resemble a particular letter of the alphabet. I'm not going to give it away, but uh, I'll give you a hint. It's one of the letters that comes between... W and Y. Now we get a few short scenes that give us more context for Kitty in this world, but also it just happened to lead into the other upcoming X-Men books. Kitty leaves the Morlock Tunnel, pops through a handy gate, and takes herself to Mars. Mars is a mess. We're told that a civil war was raging. No doubt that whole Genesis War thing as seen in recent issues of X-Men Red. The recent mutant deportees from Earth arrive into this mess, intent to congregate at the spaceport. When Kitty arrives through a spaceport gate, she's seen coming through by our old pal Woofer, the fellow we just saw dropped here by that Orca spaceship. Kitty tries to intimidate him into forgetting her, but ends up recruiting him to take a census of all the mutants he can find there on Mars. I expect we'll be seeing more of him, either in this book or in X-Men Red. Now, we get a quick, confusing page featuring Forge. Forge is, um... Hell, I don't know where Forge is, but that's okay, because neither does he. The ever-present narration boxes, which I still don't like, but they tell us that X weeks ago, he was coerced through a Krakoan gate and ended up on a dis distant world with no way home. Which is strange, because I could have sworn that Forge was one of the Red Triangle-using mutants who resisted Xavier's siren song. But I guess not, or, or maybe he started to, but couldn't keep it up. Anyway, so where has he ended up? The good news is that he wasn't transported to immediate certain death, as Xavier fears, so that's a win. Uh, on panel, the area is shown to have large mushroom fungal-type growths in evidence, which also doesn't look like any part of Mars that I can recall. It has a Krakoan gate, so mutants have been here before. Forge sees that the gate is out of order and immediately jump to the conclusion that Krakoa is incapacitated, and this of course means bad things for the Krakoan organic tech he had used to give those children of the vault a black mercy experience. And we the readers are shown a panel of those children stepping forth from their traps, and an editorial note referring to us to their own upcoming title. So what is it with Forge stepping through gates and ending up lost? Didn't we just see this in issues 19 and 20? When he and M-Plate went to an alternate nowhere with a K and something happened that I still don't quite understand? Is this new situation at all connected to that older one? Or are these similarities just coincidental? I honestly don't know. I, I hope it's connected because that would be kind of cool. Next is the Ms. Marvel scene. Over in the Weird Science Slack, available to all Patreon supporters, Simon wants to know why in these pages Kamala looks like she's 25. My answer is that she's using her inhuman stretchy powers to change her appearance. Heck, in uh, ASM, she made herself look just like Mary Jane, so it's certainly possible. Either that or artist Stefano Caselli isn't all that great at drawing teenagers. This whole scene is a bit of a cop-out, I gotta say. As listeners to our Hellfire Gala coverage will surely remember, I was looking forward to Kamala's conservative, religious, Muslim family 
reacting to the techno-magical resurrection of their dead daughter. I wanted to see these ordinary residents of the Marvel Universe grappling with the deep philosophical quandaries all this stuff necessarily dredges up. But no, instead, Emma Frost just mind whammies them and everyone else, including all public records, into thinking she was never dead to begin with. So if you bought that Kamala Khan memorial issue, you might as well just set it on fire, because it officially doesn't matter. Complete waste of a storyline, one of the cheapest, sleaziest, most manipulative tricks Marvel has paid on readers in, I don't know, a couple months at least. Up next, one panel that functions as the in-universe reveal of the Avengers Unity Squad that Cap has put in together. This might have hit much harder if Marvel hadn't spoiled all of this months ago in press releases and solicits. Moving on. Uh, finally, we get a conversation between Emma, in disguise as Hazel Kendall, Tony Stark's very personal assistant, and Kate. Emma wants to know what happened to Kitty when she fell through the gate, and also, surely why Kate has that crazed look on her face right now and has gotten all murder-happy. This is when we, the readers, get to see that Jerusalem scene that we've already talked about. Kate doesn't tell Emma about it, though. She just says, nothing happened. Not very psychologically healthy there, Miss Pride. You gotta let this stuff out. But Kitty, excuse me, Shadow Cat, has a different method of catharsis in mind. She's going to go kill the traitor, Firestar. Wow, so that was a lot. A double-sized issue with lots of stuff stuffed in. Let's start negative, because why not? What bits did I like? I mean, Ms. Marvel, clearly. Don't need to revisit that. Uh, the continuing confusion as to where all those Xavier-controlled mutants went. Again, clear up what's happening there. Right now, it seems unintentionally confused. What do I like? I like the characterization. I think that this new ultra-violent Kitty Pride is going to be controversial. I'm sure that some fans want their happy-go-lucky Kitty back, and others will miss the swashbuckling Red Queen of the Hellfire Club. But Kitty's transformation into Shadowcat is very motivated in story. She's been through some awful experiences, and they've had a real effect on her. So I'm okay with this, at least as long as her character is going somewhere, and she's not, she's not just stuck as an emotionless, unstoppable killer for the long term. I like that the bad guys had a plan for what to do after they had won. Orcus feels like a big organization with charismatic leaders and also a ton of bureaucratic inertia. I'm sure they're going to screw up here and there, and I look forward to seeing our heroes exploit those mistakes, but so often bad guys in comic books don't really seem to know what to do once they've caught the car they're chasing. Orcus has a plan. I do like that this world feels big and chaotic. Yes, even if I do sometimes complain about that chaos. Hey, I am large, I contain multitudes. I remain hopeful that each of these many, many individual storylines winds up somewhere fascinating. I like that there was just the one artist on this oversized issue. I complained about all those artists on the Hellfire Gala, so in fairness here, I have to give Stefano Caselli all the credit. He drew all of the 40-ish odd pages of these books, and quibbles about Miss Marvel's age aside, they all look pretty darn great. From the dynamic fight scene in Jerusalem to the confused and terrified emotions on the faces of the exiled Earth mutants on Mars, to Dr. Stasis gloriously chewing the scenery in every panel he appears in. It all looks great. Caselli is quickly becoming one of my very favorite Marvel artists. So what else is there to do but give it a score? This is kind of a messy book. I mean, it has a main theme, that being the emotional journey of Miss Catherine Pride, but also all these other scenes that Duggan has to stuff in to satisfy other requirements and, and plug other books. Still, it, it does do the job of letting us know what the world is like post-gala, and does so, and does so with the, I might even say panache. Enough jabbering by me. 8.5 out of 10. You're an ex-fan, you should read this, you kind of gotta read this. Perhaps, finally, at long last, the X-Men title is being elevated 
to its rightful place at the center of the mutant family of titles. It's about time. That wraps things up for the current AX titles this week, but before we go, I do want to call to your attention one more book that came out this week. It is Magneto number one of four, written by J.M.D. Mateus, art by Todd Nock. It's a flashback book set during the time period that Xavier was thought to be dead, and Magneto stepped in to be headmaster of the New Mutants. Demetrius tries a clever little retcon here. He wants to explain how the simply evil villain of the early Stan and Jack books in the 60s can be the same character as the deeply complex, conflicted guy we've all come to go- we've all come to know and sometimes love in the decades since. JMD's idea is that in the early days, Magneto was just play-acting as a simple baddie. That his plan all along was that Xavier's students should come together and defeat him. He wanted, says Mr. JMD, he wanted the world to see mutants performing heroically, and so he stepped forward as the villain for those heroes to pummel. Think pro wrestling when a a new baby face rises to prominence by beating up on mid-level heels. I don't know that uh, JMD is going to make this retcon convincing, but it is a fun idea, and Todd Nock's art is just splendid. It has that retro feel to it with still a modern level of, uh, you know, style and finish. Looks great. So if modern X-Men comics aren't your cup of tea, and especially if the 1980s are your cup of tea, you could do much, much worse than give this new Magneto miniseries a try. I don't know that we're going to cover it all that much again going forward. It doesn't really connect to our current story, but if I were to score this book, I'd give it a solid 8 out of 10. Time to wrap up and take a look ahead. Next week we have Immortal X-Men number 14. Looks like we're going back for another Xavier issue. Last we saw of him, he was crying on a Krakoan beach, and he was the only mutant still on Krakoa. Ooh, and uh, also, a book I know Ruben has been eagerly awaiting, and I'm not even being sarcastic this time. Next week we get to see Children of the Vault number one. And finally, there's the alpha issue of the Ghost Rider slash Wolverine Weapons of Vengeance mini crossover for us to check out. Seems like plenty to keep us busy. Recommended reading uh, something I have for you this week. Haven't done that all that often, but uh, this week I am moved to present to you Kitty Pride and Wolverine. This is a six-issue mini written by Chris Claremont and published in late 1984 into early 1985. Those are some pretty good years, and this is a pretty good miniseries told in the classic Claremont vernacular that explains how Kitty learned all those ninja techniques that we saw from her in this week's X-Men number 25. That series, Kitty Pride and Wolverine, is available on Marvel Unlimited, which is where I am reading it. That wraps things up for me, and if Ruben were here, I know he would want me to tell you, why don't you go read some X-Men comics? 